Welcome everyone to the Ali Houston Transforms podcast. Um, I'm a former physicist who fixed my brain using nutrition and I now coach people to empower them to do the same. And if you or anyone you know could benefit from a mental health tune-up, head over to metsci.com where myself and psychiatrist Dr. Rachel Brown coach people to better mental health. And I'm really happy to have with me again Peter Dobromilski, who is a veterinary anaesthetist, surgeon, and nutrition blogger who created the legendary Hyperlipid blog. Uh, welcome back on the podcast, Peter. It's great to be back, Ali. Thanks for having me. That's great. You're very welcome. Um, you know, going back to our episode from 2019, um, it makes me think about going back even further to when I started reading about all this and um, as a physicist who was unwell at the time, your blog really appealed to me because you were going back to first principles. You know, I know yeah. that what part of what you're going to do today is kind of summarize this protons thread, which uh, a lot of people love, myself included. Um, and it, it makes me think about uh, Dr. Myhill, who has a book called, uh, it's Mitochondria, not Hypochondria. Yeah. And how that comes up a lot in your blog, Hyperlipid, as well. Um you know, something I want to say at the top, which I did with the Brad Marshall podcast as well, and thinking about the feedback from our last episode, is that as with hyperlipid, you know, and any science, I guess, the devil is in the detail, but we will try to zoom out to recap whenever we can so that it's as accessible as possible without losing the actual meaning of the thing. Yeah, fair enough. So with that in mind... Um, great to have you back on and where would you like to start? Um, shall we just begin with the cell signaling that uh, it as to how it wants to accept calories and how it should reject calories and what it does with the calories once it's either accepted or rejected them and that that's Perfect. the core to where uh, the protons thread came from and uh the, the the as a kind of general principle i have a concept that uh, fatty acids when you oxidize them generate superoxide and it doesn't matter really what state the mitochondria are in uh beta oxidation of fatty acids and feeding them into the electron transport, feeding their products into the electron transport chain generates superoxide, um, uh, which obviously is normally converted if it goes any distance into uh, hydrogen peroxide. But it, it, it generates reactive oxygen species um, and it does it roughly in proportion to how many fatty or how much of the substrate is coming from fatty acids. So fatty acids generate superoxide. That that's one core bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just sorry to interrupt, but yeah, if, if this episode goes out after the Brad Marshall one, which I think it will, um, people should be familiar with this kind of cast of characters. You know, if you don't have a, a scientific background and all these names are kind of um, you know make you scared and want to stop listening, please. Persist, they're really just uh, names for things which you can understand the effects. You don't need to have that background to understand the the flow of what we're talking about here. So um, say, can you say that again, that the production of 
um, superoxide is proportional to your fatty acid intake. Is that what you're saying? Uh, your fat, uh, your fatty acid oxidation. Oxidation. You have to burn it. Uh, if you intake it and store it, it's not going to produce anything. But if you burn it, or if you burn the fatty acids, they're going to generate superoxide. Yeah. Um, which is a signal. It's a signal that you're burning fat. Uh, if you run your metabolism instead on glucose it generates far less superoxide excepting when you generate uh, when you take the products of glycolysis and feed them into the mitochondria from the outside through the glycerophosphate shuttle that I won't go into the hows and whys, but you can we can accept that that makes glucose behave more like a fatty acid. Yeah, so it will then make the glucose, which generates very little superoxide, uh, generate more superoxide. So we have and so we have a, a a balance between fats being oxidized, which always produce superoxide, and glucose being um, metabolized, which under certain circumstances will generate superoxide. Okay. So and this is it, this is in the sort of wider setting of thinking of everything. You know, the hyperlipid blog being, you know, you can fuel yourself with glucose, you can fuel, fuel yourself with fat, um at any, you know, any mitochondria at any one time. Well well they will balance it. We'll balance it. We'll balance it. Um and uh, the other very important thing that I carry in my head is that um, I'm, I'm not very interested in the brain. The, the brain is a kind of add-on to basic metabolism. The, the, the brain doesn't do anything different other than to, to basic metabolism other than fine-tune it. Yeah, I, I, I can't see the brain being given a supply of calories and doing something different with them to what the mitochondria are going to do with them. So in the brainstem, as far as I'm concerned, there's a model that the brain has built a model that it feeds the energy supply that it senses in the arterial blood supply into this model and sees what it does. And it takes the again, the reactive oxygen species, the superoxide that is generated in that model as the satiety sing signal. Yeah, so the, the, the brain is mimicking what happens in the rest of the body based on what it's being given from the rest of the body. And it decides whether it needs more calories, less calories, or to waste calories, depending on what signal it generates in its in the brainstem. Um, mm. I wouldn't like to comment where it is, but people will start with um, anorexic hormone, uh, neurotransmitters and orexic neuro neurotransmitters. All of them, from my point of view, will be controlled by superoxide generation in the brainstem, yeah, in and, individual and, cells. And this is something that is really important about the production of superoxide in terms of feeling full, uh, the satiety signal. You know, there's obviously like multiple feedback loops in terms of satiety, but this superoxide signal is system wide. So yes. it's uh, your mitochondria across the body will be uh, putting out this signal essentially. Yes. Yes. Uh, and the um, but the brain sees it from its model that, that, it, that it, it mimics what's going on. 
there are there are nerve supplies to every cell in the body. It, all the adipocytes will have a nerve supply, so that that you can have a neurological input. But the overriding one, as far as I'm concerned, is the model in the brainstem that uses whatever's being supplied in terms of calories to either generate or not generate superoxide. If it generates superoxide, it says stop eating. If it doesn't generate superoxide, it says keep eating. That, that, that's how I view the, the kind of superficial role of the brain. Yeah, and, but, but it's, it, it, you can't, it's, if you have a car and you put diesel into it, you could, and it should have had petrol put into it. You could probably tweak the the um, the um, engine control computer to maybe make it run if you tried very hard, but it would never run properly. Yeah. So the, the the computer does what it can, but if you mess up the fuel supply, there's a limit to how much it can compensate. So, can you explain how this model is different from, say, another form of detection? How do you mean? So the, you're saying the brain has a model in place? Yes. Can you go into that a bit more? Oh well, that that this is this is just what I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it if you want to know if the brain wants to decide if there are adequate calories available, it has to in some way look at how much glucose it's being supplied with, how much free fatty acids it's being supplied with, uh, potentially how much protein it's being supplied with. So that's kind of slightly controversial thing and it has to try and integrate the whole lot together to see whether it's got adequate calories to do what it needs to do um, and uh, there are a group of cells uh, in the brainstem which have lots and lots of glucose receptors uh, trans transporters and it's, it's got actively expressed cd36 so it transports fatty acids as well and it can simply take the arterial blood supply feed it to this group of cells uh, and see what they say in terms of superoxide generation. So if they've not got enough calories, uh, they won't generate an awful lot of superoxide. If they've got tons and tons and tons of calories, uh, they'll generate lots of superoxide. Uh, and that's then transmitted to a neural signal, um, depending on uh, what, what the level of production is. And in fact, there are papers around where if you uh, infuse intra-arterial um, antioxidants uh, in the in the carotid artery to the brain uh, you can actually in rodents obviously uh, you can suppress um the satiety signal and animals having their brains infused with antioxidants would just keep eating because they never get a satiety signal um and, and that, that these things have driven me to to think in these terms of how what stops you eating um and that brings us back around to glucose versus fat and the production yeah. of superoxide yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, because obviously you can produce superoxide from glucose because even if you eat a bowl of white rice and another bowl of white rice, another bowl, you're going to stop eating at some point. Um, and um, the agricultural humans have eaten carbohydrate based diets for um, thousands of years. Um, and obesity is much more of a modern problem than that. So if you have the normal processing of glucose, correct processing of glucose, um, I don't see that anything needs to go wrong with it. Um, I think if, if you take a stand back and take the much wider picture, uh, running a metabolism uh, on uh, glucose and insulin uh, clearly works perfectly well, doesn't make you obese, may not 
be ideal on a longevity basis, but that's a whole different um, can of worms. Mm. Uh, but essentially, it's not going to lead to metabolic syndrome. So um, maybe deficiency if you're just running on rice. Well, yeah, but that, that, uh, ignoring the, the the micronutrient basis, uh, yeah. just just it, all things you, being equal. Yeah, you you don't become a beast. You're talking about. Yeah, and you, you don't become a beast simply from my point of view. Again, by eating carbohydrate, there has to be another component to it, uh, and we then come back to um, this whole business of um, the L6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, the fact that they do not generate as much superoxide as a saturated fat would um, uh, and that again came as a realization I had very early on in the protons thread um, uh, it came from uh, Dave Spire in uh, I think he's uh, in the Netherlands I forget which university now um, but but he, he again he's a, a, a deep thinker um, whose primary interest is in the origins of the eukaryote cell. Uh, and uh, he loves uh, peroxisomes uh, because peroxisomes is where you put um, the fatty acids that make too much superoxide. It, it is possible to make too much superoxide. Um, uh, and uh, his comment or his concept is that uh, uh, at the time of the formation of the eukaryote cell, um, uh, bacterial fatty acids uh, that were above uh, 22 carbon chains long uh, were automatically shunted away to the peroxisomes where they could be oxidized without doing damage to the mitochondrial signaling. Um, so um, there are a whole load of fully saturated, um, oddly named fatty acids that, that, that are peroxisomal targeted. Um, anything C22 and upwards uh, is targeted that way. And my first insight following on from that is that the um, fatty acids with lots of double bonds, this is DHA and EPA, and there are even longer ones. But they're so called all, good omega-3 ones. Yeah, good inverted commas. They're all shunted yeah. to peroxisomes as well. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, they're not being shunted to peroxisomes because they make too many um uh, uh, superoxide molecules because they're full of double bonds, which cuts down the amount of superoxide that's produced during beta oxidation. Um, they're shunted because they probably don't produce enough and they would mess up the signaling. So I have this concept that the very long ones are shunted into the peroxisomes. They're not really um, uh, dealt with by the mitochondria. DHA maybe a little bit, EPA probably a little bit more, but the mitochondria are really dealing with stearic acid, oleic acid, um, and the, the, the C16s and the C16 monounsaturates. Um, uh, obviously, they can deal with the medium chain triglycerides as well, and they do. But as a somewhat different set of problems I have is why medium chain triglycerides are very good at producing obesity um, in rodent models. Mm. Um, and the question then comes down to why uh, humans, sh well, whether they're obesogenic in humans or or not obesogenic in humans, it's hard to call it, but I suspect that they, if people are heading into weight stalls, I would suggest that uh, uh, with um, uh, with low carbing, uh, then you should, people say, consider cheese mm -hmm. and dairy, uh, which obviously is full of medium chain triglycerides. Uh, and I would also be concerned about uh, coconut oil 
because coconut oil is the one of the best obesogenic models in rodent models. Um, uh, both coconut oil and um, butter, they, they mm. both, um, provided you add a little fructose, which I, I really, I won't go into fructose, um, but um, I no, I'm really not going to go into fructose. It's too complicated and I don't understand it. Um, so, uh, but but they are potentially obesogenic models. And I think if, if you're having problems with weight loss, then then as well as taking out L6s, then maybe taking out medium chain triglycerides might be worth considering. Ali, so how got... did we get here? Because I've gone rambling off. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, we're talking about, you know, eukaryotic cells, these early cells from, um, you know, the, when, when the complexity of life really on Earth uh, went from bacteria to something more more complicated yeah uh, we're talking a, a few billion years ago right um uh you carry it uh two billion years yeah about halfway mm. through evolution basically yeah uh, um sometime after the boring billion yes and uh you know you start thinking about how long these evolutionary uh kind of the the evolution of evolution it's really hard to imagine those times i think yeah. it's safe to say that um several billion years is enough to try almost everything that it yes. could have in that environment yes um and that the fact that the these complex eukaryotic cells seem to have sprung up once because the 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 yeah. share um uh, hallmarks that indicate that it only happened one time or yeah. that the ones that survived came from a single happening. And this yes. sort of brings us around a little bit to um, not only the fact that it means that you can, if you can find effects from things like mitochondria, which are in these eukaryotic cells, um, which is really... Uh, you know, a, a sort of a bacterium that got into a, another cell and and, and uh, the, the cell said, right, okay, you can live here as long as you produce the power for me. Yeah. Um, then you can take mouse models, you can take uh, this you know, well-developed theory of how mitochondria work and say this should apply to humans because we share these ancient yeah. mitochondrial processes uh, up to a point. And, you know, thinking about Nick Lane and his writing on that yeah. sort of stuff, um, maybe that sort of brings us back to uh, the proton thread. Yeah. Um, uh, and ultimately, uh, well, Nick Lane was hugely influential on, on how I viewed it. And obviously nobody ever agrees 100% with anybody. Um, but he's, uh, and more even recently, he's been very, has affected the way I think about things a lot. Um, but... Uh, Again, we're talking about um, putting a bacterium inside an archaea or inside another bacterium. But the bacteria have been talking to themselves using superoxide. And it's very likely that the archaea have been signaling to themselves using superoxide as well. And all of the eukaryote adaptations have still preserved that signaling system. Um, and uh, it was only quite recently I realised that the bacteria still use superoxide as a primary reproductive signal. Um, if you grow um, deep ocean bacteria, um, uh, they will produce superoxide 
um, and they'll grow given food. Um, if you scavenge that superoxide, you can give them as much food as you like, they won't grow and they won't reproduce. And the superoxide is the signal. Um, and that signal, I think, is still being handed from the mitochondria to the uh, nucleus of eukaryote cell or possibly even to the cell surface. Um, but, but these are very, very old um, signaling systems um, that may, I expect they go back to Luca, the, the last universal common ancestor, uh, who, as far as we can tell, she was um, trapped uh, in, um, in hydrothermal vents and wasn't free living. Um, and only uh, and escape from the vents to free living occurred on two separate occasions, uh, once to give bacteria and once to give archaea. Um, and because they're so similar, um, uh, Nick Lane feels, and I see no reason to disagree, that they probably came from the same vent. Hmm. Um, and one end of the vent had bacteria and the other end of the vent had archaea. And they both developed techniques for getting away from the vent, uh, and which is how. But they are so by, similar. By the way, for people who don't understand what a, a hydrothermal vent is, oh. you know, some, it's a, a hot vent under the sea yep. where there's perfect conditions um, for creation of life. If yeah. you're looking for the best possible place uh, that a, it could yeah. have happened on Earth. Yeah. They're in disequilibrium. They're, they're, there's there is free energy available, and and when um, metabolism started, uh, it was almost inevitable. I mean, people think it probably started within less than half a billion years of the Earth being cool enough to have water on the surface, which is also interesting because that says when they start drilling on Mars, they're going to find. Um, bacteria-like substances below the surface because there was surface water. Uh, when, once you've developed life um, and uh, the metabolism that is generated in the vents uh, is likely to lead to life, um, it seems to happen quite quickly. Um, uh, getting eukaryotes is a different matter, but, but getting bacteria or bacteria-like um, uh, organisms uh, uh, you'll have to drill down because the surface is very inhospitable. Uh, but a mile below the surface of Earth, there's a huge biomass of bacteria. And they're basically mostly living on um, radiolysis, where um, uranium decays and splits water to uh, hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, and the bacteria a mile below the surface of the Earth will then recombine the oxygen and the hydrogen uh, to extract the energy that was provided by the radiolysis. Uh, and and they're, they're there now, and people are getting them off the tip of drills and and, and investigating them. Fascinating subject. It's, uh, so yeah, I think that there's, there is almost certainly going to be life on Mars, um, but you'll have to drill for it because um, once it's started, I think it's very hard to kill, um, but uh, it, it won't, there's no environmental reason for it to be on the surface. It's going to do far better below. Okay, so I shut up about that now. How do we get to that one as well? Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I wanted to go on at some point. Uh, but let's just mention that the whole reason I hate linoleic acid is that... Which is one of these omega-6 fats omega six fat, yeah. highly prevalent in the modern yeah, environment. Yeah, they, they don't generate the superoxide as well as saturated fatty acids do. So the satiety signal comes later and your adipocytes are a bit bigger before they decide to uh, say, I've had enough. Yeah, fat so cells that... grow, that you can eat more, 
uh, until you feel full. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and again, they will be not only are they delayed in your fat cells, um, or, or do, not only do delay satiety in your cells in, of your fat cells, but they will have the same effect in the brain, in the brain stem. Uh, and again, you you will then you can talk about that as uh, um, they're, they're non-satiety generating because they don't generate superoxide as well. Um, and that's protons ideas. Um, uh, and I think it's I think Brad has taken those ideas and really gone upwards. Uh, whereas I took those ideas and went downwards in terms of direction of I'm more and more interested in the most basic processes that I can find. Um, Brad seems to have hacks uh, and and that, that's great. That's much more practical than anything that I'll ever come up with. Um, uh, and it's a good idea for people to do these things. That's great. But there is a general um, anti-L6 feeling and people come to these conclusions for from different directions. Um, I don't care. Uh, I have my own ideas of why I don't like L6s. If other people have other ideas about why L6s are bad, that's great. <laughs> as long as we stop eating the damn things, that's perfectly OK by me. Um, and uh, the, the more you look at the way other people look at the same problem, you can I can see the convergence. And I can see, well, I think this happens this way. And that would show as so-and-so. And, uh, and I think ultimately the problem is that they probably are bad and you can converge from several different directions as to why they're bad. Um, I have my own ideas. Um, and actually, I have to say that I, I don't listen to an awful lot of blogs or podcasts on this type of subject, because when I do, I just find I'm agreeing with people and I really need to. A, I need to go and do my own thinking because <laughs> that's what I've always done. Uh, and B, you only really get interesting ideas when you disagree with somebody <laughs> that's when the progress comes um uh so that, that's i went through a phase of listening to lex fridman quite a lot um, but mm. mostly on non well he doesn't really do metabolic podcasts so uh, apart from nick lane so yeah that was that um so the, uh, my feeling is that l6s uh they're they're bad um uh, and they lead to obesity as a consequence of their poor ability to generate superoxide. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and the, as the, the, the definition of generating obesity is that you have failed to limit the ingress of calories into fat cells. And as a general principle, that probably applies to all cells. And you then have to ask yourself, well, uh, if there are too many calories coming into a given cell, uh, people who are obese should be um, full of energy, uh, should be spontaneously active, um, should be running marathons because they've got too many calories coming into their cells. And uh, that to me has been at the back of my mind. That's been a very interesting problem. Um, and. Uh, the particularly with the huge interest that there is now in metabolic psychiatry, um, uh, Chris Palmer and yourself both talking a lot about it, um, uh, made me re-examine the concept of why um, people with a predisposition to obesity should have poor energy generation when once you become obese. 
uh, as your fat cells get bigger and bigger and bigger, the ability of insulin to suppress fatty acid release goes down and down and down. Um, uh, and that's another whole story, but I won't I won't go into that. But but ultimately, we, we can accept that if your fat cells achieve a given diameter, the fat droplet uh, starts to undergo lipolysis. It's called basal lipolysis as opposed to um, uh, ordinary lipolysis. And it's not suppressible by insulin. Um, it's augmentable by um, uh, adrenaline like substances. Um, so clenbuterol, things like that, you can force basal lipolysis using clenbuterol um, uh, and become very thin and well-muscled. Um, but basal lipolysis goes up with the diameter of the fat cell, and it's not linear. Uh, it goes up on a kind of vaguely linear basis, and there's a certain size of individual fat cell where basal lipolysis suddenly goes through the roof. Um, and uh, so you get to a size where uh, of being overweight where your adipocytes just leak it's not an accidental leak or anything like that it's very actively controlled but but it just leaks they just leak fatty acids so and that's not controllable by insulin so you eat a high carbohydrate meal your blood sugar level goes through the roof your insulin level goes through the roof and your free fatty acids should go through the floor should go under 50 micrograms per 50 micromolar in the bloodstream, but they can still end up saying up at a thousand, which is fasting levels. So you've then got postprandial glucose, where there's a ton of glucose there. You've got insulin trying to facilitate you to use the glucose, and you've got fatty acids that shouldn't be there. So you're then in a situation, and different adipocytes will increase their basal lipolysis at different sizes that, 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 that there's a, a spectrum a range or a, a normal distribution or probability and there are a few chemicals that will affect it as well so uh, alcohol causes um, lipolysis that mimics basal lipolysis um, fructose if you can get it as far as the adipocytes will increase basal lipolysis um, some of the trans fatty acids the uh, artificial trans fatty acids not not so much the um, uh, dairy bacterial derived ones but the trans-industrial fatty acids uh, will they'll all increase lipolysis so you have these cells which have got a ton of glucose available a ton of insulin available and a ton of fatty acids available and they should never be in that state they should mm. if you've got high glucose there should be uh, low fatty acids that that's how the adipocyte is set up to control matters so, so this is a this is a classic kind of modern obesity broken metabolism situation you can't be flexible. You can't. What you should be flexible. You should either be burning glucose with insulin and shutting down fatty acid release, or you should be burning fatty acids because there is no insulin or very little insulin because glucose is low. And you should both flick between those two states between fasting and eating, eating and postprandial. Um, and if your adipocytes are too big, whatever too big means, it's not the same in every person, um, or at the same time, actually different. You, if you eat different substances, you can alter lipolytic response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if you have too much, then ultimately you are going to supply too many calories to all cells in the body. And you should, once you're obese enough, stop being hungry. And that 
clearly doesn't happen. <laughs> but theoretically, that's what should happen. So um, I had to go and revisit. Uh, I've known I've had this at the back of my mind as a worry for a decade. Why, why do people who are obese, why are they still hungry when they a their free their fasting free fatty acids are very high and their fed free fatty acids with glucose are still very high? This abundance of available energy yeah. Um, yeah. It leaves them still hungry. And on the other side of the energy and energy out equation, they're not feeling this spontaneous energy level increase or uh, increase in warmth. Um, so yeah. what's happening? Well, this again, we go uh, uh, again. I go back to Nick Lane. <laughs> he has been very influential on me. And uh, he. Um, he floated the concept that um, what cells care about is the flux, the rate of production of reactive oxygen species. And again, if you're somebody like me who thinks everything goes back to reactive oxygen species and you go right back to the fact that bacteria are still using reactive oxygen species as their primary signal uh, and have been doing for four and a bit billion years, Reactive ROS are of the control substance and they're what the body will and will not tolerate. They're, they're what they use as a signal for everything from uh, feed, grow, die. Yeah, that's everything from apoptosis is reactive oxygen species de derived. That's um, when uh, that's when a cell kind of, um, yeah, they, they, they commit die. suicide, really. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but very technical, very controlled. Mm -hmm. um, very much this is exactly what we want to do there are other techniques for dying um but but apoptosis is the one which is nicely reactive in fact they're probably all techniques are probably reactive oxygen species derived apoptosis is a nice one um so if you the 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 body can deal with a certain amount of uh, ros generation uh, it's got uh, superoxide dismutase, it's got catalase, both of which are enzymes that break down, well, convert superoxide to hydrogen peroxide, and then hydrogen peroxide to oxygen and water. So the, 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 the cell has ways of dealing with it, but there are limits to what can be done. And the body would rather shut down ATP production if by shutting down ATP production, it can limit excessive reactive oxygen species gener generation and where um, ATP production is the the universal unit of energy that the body uses primarily produced by the mitochondria produced by transferring electrons in as opposed to out um, and uh, then using the the, the the proton gradient of the mitochondria as an a, as like a water mill to produce ATP as the as the protons flow back into the cell. But the body will tolerate a lack of ATP if it has to suppress reactive oxygen species levels to a tolerable limit. And the, the, the research Nick, Nick Lane's group have done, uh, not published yet, um, but it's it, it will be, I'm sure, is that uh, they looked at the glutathiolation of complex one and glutathione, glutathione as we all know is, is an antioxidant um, and it particularly uh, is joined if you have changes to the sulfhydryl group the sulfur group um, either on a protein or on glutathione 
the two will join together and you and you can stick glutathione onto a protein if that protein has been damaged by uh, a reactive oxygen species molecule um, and if you have um, too many reactive oxygen species being produced by the electron transport chain the body will add glutathione to the um, complexes the, the, the mitochondrial complexes and simply shut them down and it particularly shuts down complex one um, which is complex one is the one that um, uh, uses uh, NADH which again we don't have to worry too much about but um, NADH is a universal currency and it's the one primarily produced by glucose um, uh, glucose oxidation it, it, um, um, glucose derived calories uh, tend to produce NADH uh, fatty acid ones more uh, mixture of NADH and um, FADH2 which is another energy currency again I like a uh, electron carrier you know you think about yes, you mentioned yeah. the water mill uh, analogy if you look at these things um, they actually look like little machines, little rotating mm. machines, little machines that push the electrons through. The, they, they do, they, yes. They, the, there's these uh, substances like NADH and so on that carry the electrons, and they're specific to, to different uh, processes, like you say, whether it's glucose or fat, that you're getting the electron from. But all people who don't have the, you know, the depth of background have to worry about is, there's little machines in your mitochondria that strip the electron and move it along yeah. and that these different NADH, FEDH um, electron carriers are there in different proportions depending on which type of fuel you're, you're, yes. you're using or trying to use. Yes, but if you are providing simply too much fuel, i.e. you've got glucose at 20 millimoles per litre, high fasting postprandial glucose, and you've got fatty acids at high concentrations, and you've got insulin facilitating the generation of reactive oxygen species as well, you've got too much. And if you've got too much, the body doesn't care about getting tons and tons of ATP at that point. It just wants less reactive oxygen species to be generated. Uh, and if the easiest way to do that is simply shut down complex one, uh, and it glutathiolates, complex one. Complex one then stops um, transmitting electrons down the electron transport chain. The electron, the, the voltage component, uh, delta, psi, delta psi component of, of the mitochondria goes down and reactive oxygen species generation is limited. And the body appears to be perfectly willing to mangle ATP production to limit um, uh, reactive oxygen species generation. So you then have an electron transport chain where the front end of it um, is basically turned off and the rest of it is still working. But obviously the complex one produces a huge proportion of, of the um, membrane voltage in mitochondria uh, and simply disabling it uh, will drop the membrane voltage. And it's very hard to generate reactive oxygen species if there's a low membrane voltage. So and if you can't generate reactive oxygen species, it's hard to feel full, right? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, if you have this happening in peripheral cells, we call it insulin resistance because um, you've shut down reactive oxygen species to avoid going over the top. Um, in the brain, you would simply describe it as hunger. 
yeah, because the, the satiety signal doesn't come. And it, when you start with, uh, when you go from being um, obese without insulin resistance, i.e. you're not leaking too many fatty acids from your adipocytes to obesity with insulin resistance, um, then the types of fatty acids that are being produced are whatever is stored in the adipocyte. It's not selective. The, it, it's, it, it's not influenced nearly as much by diet and the meal you just ate a moment ago. Mm. Uh, it, and, and if you've been eating a high carbohydrate diet and your uh, fat cells are full of uh, palmitic acid um, with some oleic acid, that's what will get released. So you, uh, these are really good, uh, particularly palmitic acid and stearic acid. They're really good at producing reactive oxygen species. They will be being released in combination with glucose. The, the cells that are getting this delivered to them just can't cope with it. They don't want that many reactive oxygen species and they shut down complex one. They also do interesting things to complex four as well. But again, it, 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 the general principle is um, cells are willing to shut down ATP production uh, to avoid excessive mitochondrial reactive oxygen species being generated. Mm, um, so, so, so protective mechanism that, that comes at the, the sort of uh, this endpoint obesity of um, some, some process or set of processes that lead to obesity. And it's a, a kind of um, ironic checkmate. If people are eating like that, then yes. their fat cells are leaking the very type of fat that is making them um, that, that that should make them a not hungry and yes. and give them um, a source of fuel, but something's not working. Complex one is being shut down because they would be producing there. There are too many calories, and it's impossible to limit the calories at the adipocyte end of the supply. So you the 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 evolution has decided that uh, simply shutting down ATP production is better than having too much reactive oxygen species generation. Uh, and hence, you, you simply don't have energy. Um, and that classically is, is, is a problem that people who are obese struggle hard. Um, that, do you remember from, might have been before your time, um, there was a blogger called uh, Jay Stanton the name rings a bell. Yeah. Um, uh, Gnolls.org. And uh, he, he signed off. Um, he's a low carver. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm, I've said all I need to say. I'm burned out. I'm going to stop blogging from now onwards. And that was 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, he was a nice chap. Um, and uh, he, uh, we talk about reward and addiction and things like that. And he, suggested that uh, if you were sat down and fed a dehydrated soybean meal, chili con con, whatever that, that was, you'd been backpacking around. If you would sit down and eat it now, it would be disgusting. <laughs> he said, if you had a long day in the hills, you'd cover a lot of miles. You were ravenous. This would taste like ambrosia. Yeah. So reward is, in terms of what, what, reward is context specific um, and I'm, I'm not a great believer in reward because um, something that tastes like dirt is delicious if you're ravenous <laughs> okay um, 
and he had this uh, he had that concept um which to me was uh, quite formative and i looked at the effects of shutting down the electron transport chain to protect against reactive oxygen species and buying that at the cost of um, shutting down ATP production. Now, we have a perfectly good alternative, oops, sorry, uh, technique for ATP production, and that's glycolysis. Uh, it may be fairly inefficient, um, uh, but it's extremely fast and it can be used to fix an ATP deficit on a short-term basis. So if you take some poor person who has been eating linoleic acid to the point where they're uh, obese, they're leaking free fatty acids all the time, they've shut down energy production because if they don't shut down energy production, they're going to get far too many reactive oxygen species generated. If you supply them with a supply of glucose, their cells are going to be very happy. Um, it's quite likely that their, um, uh, their hypothalamus is going to be very happy because it's been starving and suddenly it's been given an Oxfos independent source of ATP. Um, and like... so you're in this, you're in this uh, kind of dastardly situation where you find yourself to be obese yet without energy and you learn this is what you're saying isn't it that you, you learn. learn it's a it's, a, it's a, learning through the experience of having energy all of a sudden when you eat glucose and produce energy through glycolysis could lead in itself to a kind of addiction cycle probably light up your dopamine receptors like you um and of course, I, I would assume, and I've not, not chased the papers on this, but I would assume that fructose does it even better than glucose because obviously, uh, and fructose, you, you only have to drink a high fructose drink um, and glycolysis becomes active enough that you develop lactic, lactic acidosis, not, not to clinic. You, 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 drinking a can of Fanta um, will produce lactate up at the, uh, at the um, exercise lactate threshold. It, it will get you that high. Um, so clearly you have the ability to produce very large amounts in a short period of time uh, of ATP if you're in an energy deficit. Yeah, this is, uh, again, Chris Palmer's work. He's, he's pushing. I haven't read his book. I probably ought to. Um, but again, I, I try and think independently. That's that's how I've always worked. Um, I can see that there's there's a cycle of addiction there. Um, but it, but how much of it is pure metabolism and how much of it is behavioral? Uh, it, it's an interesting question, but I, I can see how people can become addicted to carbohydrate, particularly if they are um, if they're already obese. Um, and nobody would presumably, I think, presume nobody would think to blame uh, linoleic acid for that happening because it's four steps back before it triggered but uh but no that 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 has crossed my mind as to why people might be carbohydrate addicted um uh and how much of the complexities on top of that that brain actually produces is and again if you're going to break a brain how it breaks 
depends on presumably there are small genetic differences that determines whether you break your brain um, with this ion this ion channel you get schizophrenia that ion channel you get bipolar disorder the third ion channel maybe you just get intractable depression um yeah so well this is something that i wanted to pick up on you know i was looking through hyperlipid again and um in 2006 you did a post on parkinson's and mm. you mentioned it a couple of times in other uh posts but and you mentioned other neurological conditions as well um but i love how georgia he talks about you know there's there's not a, a sort of neurological neuron and a psychiatric neuron and yep. um, and it, you know this study you spoke about on parkinson's it was in seven people um on a, a ketogenic diet to see if there was any difference and the five people who stuck with it all had improvement on some the, improvement yeah improvement on the measurement scale yeah. and it's in obviously interesting because parkinson's is meant to be uh progressive and intractable you are like type 2 diabetes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so, you know, that paper is has been cited by many, including, you know, recent reviews that kind of bring together, you know, emerging evidence for uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, migraine, all of these yeah. neurological conditions. And of course, there's a, over 100 years of, of research on a ketogenic diet for uh, for um, epilepsy. Yes. So, I mean, do you make a distinction at all between neurological disease and psychiatric disease? No, no, I don't think so. I think that that they're all going to be metabolic related. Um, I'd be very surprised that that uh, and but there will be genetic differences in terms of who gets which one uh, and trying to, but how much of them? Uh, it, it looks like a very large chunk of them should be sortable by a generic approach to energy supply and again i haven't haven't talked about why ketogenic diets should actually improve uh, mitochondrial function because yeah, that'd be great to talk about that because well i don't, don't, don't really have an answer but you're supplying an, a, a, a ton of acetylcholine yeah a mitochondrial uh, a, a, um, ketogenic diet doesn't really supply anything other than um, fatty acids, which find fewer astrocytes. Um, they can convert fatty acids into ketones within your brain um, or ketones directly. Um, and you're not going to do anything with those other than um, use mitochondria. And given given the um, given the choice, uh, the, 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 obviously there will have to be mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, but but exactly how that happens, I've not I've not gone into that at all. And exactly the same thing will be happening in in peripheral adipocytes as well. Um, but but no, it, it, it's I think ketogenic diet completely sidesteps the problem. Um, uh, it, 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 in in exactly the same way, it, it's a low insulin diet. It, it doesn't care um, about um, insulin resistance. Um, you can generate enough calories from a ketogenic diet um, to supply what you would have been getting from insulin and glucose. Um, and obviously, if you go ketogenic, then uh, glucose is low, insulin is low. Uh, all you've got to do is work with fatty acids and the system will balance itself out on fatty acids. But it takes, what, um, a week of keto flu? Mm. Um, That's maybe... the, if, you, if you find yourself at this point of having... Uh become obese or you know functionally obese if you like where um 
what you're eating, you know, is, is you know, you're you're leaking fat out of your uh, fat cells, and you're not able to properly create energy anymore. When you go on a ketogenic diet, your insulin levels drop right down. Yep, and things start to move again, right? Yes, um, and uh, you again, fatty acids um, will develop reactive oxygen species, but they'll generate them at fatty acid levels they don't require um the uh, they the, the the control system which is in place for fatty acids appears to work perfectly well um provided you're not using insulin glucose on top of it so uh, again like fasting we, we're designed not to be injured by fasting because occasionally you don't catch something for a while um but the uh yeah the ketogenic diet's a little bit more complicated than seeing how you might accept carbohydrate addiction as a sticking plaster on failed mitochondria. <laughs> okay, keto ketosis, there's a lot more goes on with, with that. Um, the rule of thumb is it seems to work. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many different pathways. And yeah, like yeah. Uh, any sort of ancient pathway, uh, you know, like uh, uh, superoxide generation, reactive oxygen species going back billions of years, <laughs> It's hard to imagine a million years, you know, if you think about, you know, 2000 years ago was kind of, you know, Jesus and the Romans and everything. Then you go back maybe another 10,000 years and you've got the the sort of Gebekli Tepe uh, early civilization kind of stuff. You're already just so far into the mist <laughs> yes. of time and yes. you're, you're absolutely nowhere in terms of getting back to how old the processes are. And they end up uh, stacking on top of each other as a kind of, uh, ballet of incredible intricacy that um, where each chemical and step is probably doing 10 things and 10 yes. more that we don't know about yes. um, because it works out a way to be as uh, good as possible in that environment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That And it has to be the best. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. Yeah. It's then. Uh, it, the, again, it makes me very cautious about anybody who wants to develop one drug to hit one receptor and expects to get one effect, and that that isn't going to fly. It, it just it's uh, the the law of unintended consequences is unavoidable um, and yes. very powerful. And I guess like the big question then is if the ketogenic diet is a an intervention that can sometimes be modeled as drug-like certainly if someone is on drugs uh you know for from their doctor then if they if they suddenly decide to go keto then having access to their doctor is advisable because you often need to de-prescribe yes. um uh, quite quickly and repeatedly so you know why why does the keto diet as a rule of thumb seem to work and seem to work systemically and on so many processes? Yeah. Well, and, and I think you have to go back. I think over the last few million years, probably go back to Mickey Bendor's work and where human beings came from and what they lived on and uh, uh, what we're currently best adapted to. And why, well, people who couldn't cope on a ketogenic diet have not left offspring 
today. Yeah, there's been 10,000 years maybe of selection away from coping with the ketogenic diet. But even, even in agricultural times, then babies have been ketogenic for as long as, until they're weaned, basically. So um, I, I tend to subscribe to the, the concept that it's the evolutionary appropriate diet. It's the fallback um, or the the fallback is quite the right word. Uh, it's the default if you are having problems uh, with a more modern diet. Um, and why that? That's a very interesting question. The the, the, the whole concept that, yes, uh, uh, the, the numbers that Chris Palmer throws around uh, are that a third of people will go into complete remission for bipolar or schizophrenia on a third of them will get marked improvement, but won't get complete remission. And a third it does bugger all for. Yeah. And you go back um, to people like Amber, uh, Amber O'Hearn, who were keto for decades, probably. I'm not quite sure how long Amber was before she went carnivore. Um, with Ten years, keto. give or take, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe Sorry? 15. Yeah, thereabouts. And then she went complete carnivore. Um got rid of all plants and went into bipolar remission within seven days. So that's uh, why. Okay. What are the plants doing that should facilitate the maintenance of an energy deficit problem within the brain? That's a really, really interesting uh, question to answer. And then the, the next move obviously is uh, going carnivore is one step beyond the pale socially. Going keto carnivore, keto, I was going to say keto AF, but you know what I mean. Mm, keto <laughs> animal foods. but or Yeah, whatever. something like that, <laughs> maybe, um, which I suspect is your third step. How many people who have not got the insight and the background knowledge would accept that that is a necessity to control certain processes within the body? But it appears to be the case, and I think trying to, pick at those things i think some people ultimately just have to accept that that either they're going to have to do that or they're going to have to live with their metabolic problem but why should that flick occur from uh, deep ketosis and it can be very very deep ketosis to carnivore mild ketosis or carnivore deep ketosis produce such a change and within seven days um the, the, the this i have no handle on at all I, I do not understand that i would love to understand that that's a um a fascinating problem to to try and get to the bottom of um but again in terms of helping people um to, uh, from my point of view as, as a fairly ketogenic carnivore um the concept of going back to eating ketosis uh, as, as, a, as a mixed diet ketosis person it's dead easy it, it's socially completely acceptable you know you go around to to, to, to the in-laws house uh, it, it's roast beef you just have the roast beef put some butter on it um, maybe eat a few bits of vegetable as well if you're feeling like making people happy she's probably made keto ice cream or something like that so it, it, it's, it's not difficult you're not a social outcast um, particularly if you're dairy free sitting down and eating all of the roast beef joint and leaving none for anybody else, that ain't going to fly. <laughs> so a keto is easy for, when you 
played for, with it for as long as I have. Uh, carnivore is slightly more difficult. I mean, keto carnivore is just, you, you're a social, you're out on a limb socially. Um, and I can understand completely that everybody can do it. Um, but then it depends, A, on what your medical pressures are that want to make you improve, uh, and B, how convinced you might or might not be by the arguments. And I find it very difficult not having an argument for the elimination of plants. I, I know they're toxins. I accept that the primary, the primary site of injury for most plant toxins is the gut. You know, that's, that's where you put the plants. That's where they're going to provide the greatest concentration of toxins but why should that affect metabolic syndrome or neurological energy metabolism the way it seems to that, that that's a really really interesting question and again i've got no idea <laughs> they're the great things uh, not knowing the answer is is a source of fascination to me <laughs> yeah and I, I, it makes me think about the sort of the two legs striding forward in physics they talk about you know of theory and experiment and how we have uh, places in society for the likes of Sean Carroll a theoretical physicist of some fame who talks about things like string theory which are basically untestable as far as we yes. can tell um, but have some credence because the maths is cogent so you say yep. that's probably how the universe is um <laughs> but so what in a sense you know it's interesting but yep. what actually happens and similarly with um you know keto versus carnivore for mental health you kind of have to look at what happens regardless of the theory around it yes because yes, who, yes. You know, pragmatics who, Pragmatics, you know, what happens in your life uh, is is really what most people care about their lives. You know, this, um, you know, an endless theorizing about what someone could do or could feel like if this, that and the other thing. You really have to try it, right? And embody it and um, and dip your toe in. Um, yes. And this is something that I work with uh, clients on and you know, a lot of people do come to the idea that keto can be helpful for mental health. And some of them start with the idea, you know, what's, what's a carb? Um, you're starting from scratch. And they can just about get their head around the idea that, you know, you, you just cut out the starch and the sugar, the bread, um, the pasta, and have some protein and veggies that you like and add fat that you like and that's a kind of established established ground that most people can deal with but like you say there's two-thirds of people who try um, keto for mental health or neurological health where there's some effect but not as much as they would like and yeah. like you say selling carnivore is is a problem for multiple reasons so yes. it, it it actually it's going to be very hard to ever work out whether um that is the missing piece uh but you know another point is i did a the mctober experiment in october where i, yep. I just ate mcdonald's triple burgers um without the bun um though i did have the the condiments 
and the and then I supplemented that with egg yolks cooked to beef dripping. Yes. That was all I ate for the whole month. I felt absolutely brilliant, mentally very sharp, uh, loads of energy, um, lost six kilos that I didn't know I had to lose. I looked thin. It was quite remarkable, I think. And then um, in, Febu- in February, which we're just coming to the end to, I embarked on grass fed jury. Yeah. So um, I was having uh, grass fed beef and lamb. A lot of it was from an organic uh, pasture for life farm. Um, I included some organ meat. And within about two weeks, I felt mentally sluggish and I couldn't grasp my words. And I compared it to October decided that maybe the egg yolks was the difference, supplemented with choline, immediately got my word recall back and decided to abandon the experiment. And, you know, that was carnivore, but yep. it didn't work for me. Um, and so this sort of two thirds of people who try keto, there's several levers you can pull. There's yeah. the, uh, the calorie source, there's the micronutrition, um, and there's the balance between fat and protein, I guess. Uh, plus this cultural element where what do you do when you go down to the in-laws? Yes. Yes, quite. Uh, there, 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 there's, there's clearly more to it. And that's fine. Life is always going to have more to it. <laughs> it would be boring if, if we had all the answers. And uh, But no, I, I can see on a practicality basis that... Uh, all meat is socially problematic. I've always viewed egg yolks as a as a multivitamin. Um, how intrinsic that would be to human beings. Again, if you're in a temperate climate, um, you're not going to have egg yolks all the year round. That's for sure. Um, so why? And what on an individual basis makes people cope or not cope? Uh, I don't know. There, there's too much to go. Uh, that there, you know, there's, there's too far to go yet. Um, and uh, practically, I think if you <laughs> think if you were going to recommend uh, a, an all carnivore diet, I think a bit of choline wouldn't do any harm. But that's your n equals one. What other n equals ones people have of their own individual variation? Uh, I think it, it's way too early to know these things yet. And you've been, in some ways, you could say you've been lucky. You had a nice, you had a control setup uh, and an intervention that you could. And it must have been quite shocking that, that the whole grass fed thing wasn't enough. It was actually, um, you know, there's decent evidence that the beef and lamb I was eating was more nutritious than mm. the already pretty good McDonald's beef, which is just 100% British beef and we're yeah. good at growing beef in, in the UK. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a bit of a shock. Um, you, know, you, you hear so many success stories of people just eating muscle meat and not even the organs. And I think that is the, the key is this N equals one experimentation. And really, I, I think that's another X factor here is that people finding the confidence to do that and be different is um something that's not in some people's characters yes yes yeah and ultimately there and again there is <clears throat> there is a continuous selection pressure in terms of humans are in the process of adapting to a modern diet yeah so uh, ultimately if you did it for long enough um there would be 
a group of, of there'll be a population that were the ones who coped best with donuts fried in uh, sunflower oil. And they would be the people, eventually, if we don't change matters, they will be the people who survive. Um, but the process of um, acting on uh, of natural selection is based on reproductive failure. That's, and actually, uh, I don't know how many young people of childbearing age, but an awful lot of the ones I work with have had to have assisted reproduction problems. So we're at the moment, me medicine is is fighting against evolution. So these people, lovely they are, though they are, lovely though their children are, um, on an evolutionary basis, um, these are not the people that are well adapted to a modern diet. But again, the other concept from Nick Lane is that evolution can be very, very fast indeed. Um, mm. People think of it in terms of being slow because it happens over billions of years and then you get the um, um, the explosion of um, hard animals. Uh, pick up Anyway, um, but given a sufficient selection pressure, uh, evolution can happen very rapidly. Uh, so that in the fossil record, it appears to be in instantaneous um, and explosive. Um, so evolution is not always slow. If the conditions are stable for a very long time, uh, then evolution is obviously going to be very, very slow. Um, but at the moment, uh, the environmental conditions are changing very rapidly. Uh, and we would probably be evolving very rapidly, except for medicine. Uh, medicine puts sticking plasters on the damage that is used to eliminate people who are not adapted to the modern circumstance. Um, and um, that it, it, it applies, again, we go back to, to Mickey Bendor and uh, starch ad adaptation in humans and uh, the fact that there's a bell curve, there's a 5% of people really are horribly, horribly badly adapted to starch uh, consumption. 5% at the other end of the bell curve are absolutely utterly fine on it and everyone else is distributed between the middle and you might be on the upward slope or the downward slope so you may have a lot of pathology or not very much pathology depending on all sorts of things but like <clears throat> even like your background genetics like if you carry the HLA B27 white blood cell marker um, you're going to do badly on starch um, and uh, the um, you can cope perfectly well as HLA B27 positive uh, if you don't eat starch. So it's common uh, in the circumpolar regions. Um, uh, if you, uh, from tropical equatorial regions, um, you, HLA B27 is very rare because um, you're not going to get on. You're going to, anybody who carried the HLA B27 gene developed ankylosing spondylitis or, uh, or anterior uveitis in the eye. Uh, and these are not long-term survival problems <clears throat> for a, a hunter-gatherer. Um, so th there's a distribution in terms of uh, uh, what was and wasn't available food-wise, um, which determines that the, the, because people have evolved, uh, not, not because evolution has a plan to make you cope all right with living on walrus meat up north, um, but because people who um, couldn't tolerate eating starches uh, died out in the equatorial regions and survived up north. Um, uh, and there, there's thought to be uh, an infectious disease advantage to HLA-B27 
which offsets the um the, the problems it causes on autoimmune basis mm. um so that yeah, there's this the thing that these that these bell curves and distributions of yeah uh an individual's response to various environments um it's not just a single isolated bell curve for starts like you say intersects with some other thing um like we were talking about earlier how uh you know evolution's had so long to try stuff that it you get considerable multi-use um chemicals and genes and so on and then you start introducing epigenetics where the epigenetic response to the environment can be extremely powerful uh yeah. you know like my, my favorite book on that is the nessa carey one the, the epigenetic revolution which she, she uses the analogy that you know your genes can be the same like um the script for uh the romeo and juliet the zeffirelli's uh romeo and juliet versus the um the baz lerman one the script's the same yeah. Yeah. but the expression of it is wildly different um yeah yeah and again, that will come down to acetylation and um, and glutathionylation, uh, and all of the, the in terms of what what controls these things. That will be um, again. It's a huge subject. It's it's, it's interesting, but it, it for me at the moment it's too big. <laughs> it's too big. I'm still stuck down at my basic. Um, this is the bacterium living inside an archaeon, and that's what we call a mammalian cell. Um, so uh, and but, do you see yourself are... going do you see yourself going deeper and deeper um or hanging up your spurs at some point like uh like no the idea. what we were talking about i have no idea i, I just do not know uh, and and i took what six months off during the summer this, this year I, i'd stopped blogging if i've got something to I, I mostly partly i stopped blogging because i was utterly i could not fit medium chain triglycerides into the protons hypothesis where it's the ratio of um nadh and fadh2 um it, it just doesn't fit it ha the, the the medium chain triglycerides have to be being processed differently um which annoyed me until i accepted that well actually at the other end of the scale uh, dha is processed differently as well so you know the body has taken evolution down to c16 or, or metabolic control down to c16 to c18 carbons uh, anyway uh, the um uh that's palmitic that versus linoleic right sorry the the bug in the ointments linoleic yes yeah but that's that that stopped that that really really got to me because that that and it took a while for the penny to drop that that it's not the end of the world that not everything fits in as i want them to <laughs> they can't be right about everything um but I, I only i don't have a plan i don't i just try and understand stuff and some things interest me some things absolutely make sense which is great box tick some things just don't make sense at all uh, and, and again they're the interesting ones but they're interesting if you can make progress if you end up with well this doesn't make sense but i can't understand why it doesn't make sense that that's just frustrating um but i, I suppose i started blogging what 2001 2002 something it was quite a while ago um and I only really blog about stuff that I'm interested in. People have made suggestions over the the, the years. Oh, what about this? What about that? Well, unless my brain grabs it and goes, oh, yeah, that's exciting. I've got no chance. I, I, I passed a number of exams over the years. And I am appalling 
at passing exams. Um, there are people who have a revision plan and um, summarize the revision plan and then take it down into smaller bites and smaller bites and smaller bites until they end up with the whole of um, of a given subject in, in two sides of A4. And they walk into their exam having memorized the answers to every question that could possibly be asked. And I class that as cheating, <laughs> learning the answers, um, even without knowing the questions. Uh, me, I kind of try and understand the subject and I hope that I understand enough to wing it through the exams. So I never got A stars in any of my exams throughout the whole of university. Um, I worked on the basis that if I understand it, I should be able to answer most questions that they come up with. And I think I got kind of middle of the road grades probably all the way, apart from that time in pathology. That was embarrassing. We, <laughs> we were, uh, started my fourth year pathology viva and uh, we were talking about chicks and yolk sac peritonitis and I was having a blind panic because I wasn't very good at pathology <laughs> and uh, we were talking about yolk sac peritonitis and whether it was an internal problem or an external problem and uh, it's internal because that's where the yolk sac ends up um, and uh, my, I, I couldn't I couldn't come up with an answer for this whether it was internal or external and my pathology examiner turned to me and said Mr Dobromilski have you ever seen a day-old chick? Because <laughs> obviously they've got a yolk sac hanging out the outside. <laughs> was, oh my God, things got better after that. It, <laughs> it did pass me. I didn't have to do research on pathology, but God knows how. Um, so I, I would basically learn general... I had to understand the subject, and then I could usually wing it on coming up with a reasonable exam answer. Uh, it didn't always work, um, but, but that's the way I've worked. And I've never been terribly good at sitting there with a, a revision plan so if I wanted to come up with the theory of everything then I couldn't just because I, I don't have that global perspective I have things that interest me they catch me and I follow on well if that's true then that should be true and that should be true and then I go and look for confirmation bias I find the studies that fit in and while I'm finding the studies that fit in I find the ones that don't fit in as well and they're really exciting um so I hope that I have some degree of control over my own confirmation biases but I'm very very aware that they're very very real yeah but that's just how I work I don't I don't have a plan um I don't have when I started the protons thread I had no idea where it was going to go I shouldn't have called it protons either uh, it, it was called protons again uh, through it's Nick Lane's fault, uh, and he was talking about the the, the proton gradient in uh, hydrothermal vents and how this drives uh, metabolism, um, and ultimately I ended up not so much in the protons but in the control of the electron flow that generates the proton gradient and what happens to that electron flow. It's uh, again a bit like Brad electrons in electrons out. Um, they go in where they should and they pop out, not where they shouldn't, because four and a bit billion years is a very long time. Nothing happens accidentally. Um, they do the best they can with the circumstances that they're given, which we give them. Um, so and th that's where I came from. Um, and I, I don't have a plan. And uh, if I lost interest in various aspects of blogging, I would just stop blogging. Um, but if something comes up that's interesting, I'm perfectly willing to 
to spend a couple of hours and stick a post out there. A couple of hours to write the post, two days to try and find all the typos, grammatical errors and logical inconsistencies that I've typed in. Uh, but but that's kind of that's what I do. And it's it's these are things that interest me. If they didn't interest me, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm, protons came. It's the wrong name. It should really be electrons or superoxide. Mm. because that that's ended up more core to me yeah uh, you know for people confused about the idea of protons and thinking oh, what's this got to do with radioactivity or nuclei or anything it's 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 the hydrogen atom with the electron taken out right yeah that's a proton yeah um yeah yeah i mean it's been amazing seeing the reaction over the years to the uh, the hyperlipid blog and I was just so grateful to find it as someone who studied physics and to think about it from first principles and um, I think I'm a bit like you I, I struggle to learn things by rote what I really <laughs> like to do is to learn a, a learn how to think not what to think yes and and then and then you know you can always access any information you need so yep. it's not about learning factoids it's about trying to uh you know re-examine your biases and your your way of understanding the world so that it's fairly reliable yes yes that, that's what i like about the the protons concept is that it has quite good explanatory power uh it falls down because i hadn't realized how uncoupling was related to um how important uncoupling was to fatty acid to polyunsaturated fatty acids so there were weird things like if you gave a you gave a rodent model 70 percent sunflower oil as its calories it lost weight but it's almost all in lac acid and so that again there are there are it's not complete the protons concept is not in any way complete uh, and i keep finding bits that i'll add on to it but nothing that makes me go no nah, it's junk it's completely wrong so far it's makes sense uh, and it has stood reasonably stood the test of time um, um but it's again it's messy because I, I don't have all of the pieces the jigsaw but if this piece fits there and this piece fits there and i know this piece has got to be that shape uh, I, i'm perfectly willing to wait until the odd shape piece comes through because i know what i'm looking for yeah like you, say, you, end, you end up with um you know interesting adjuncts around like uh, mcts and what brad does around saying you know drink your poor tea and um you know maybe there's a few other hacks which allow you to you know work around or uh sh show up notable exceptions or avoid foods that that might uh, cause problems or other lifestyle behaviors that might cause problems yes quite yeah. even these uh, even this amazing feedback uh to do with light and metabolism yes yeah there's loads of stuff there yeah and again how do you fit that in it's um Again, one always has ideas, but but uh, it doesn't go back to my it doesn't go back to bacteria and hydrothermal vents. And again, I've just been driven back in that direction, possibly because I'm lazy. I don't have to you, because once you if you take it all back to the most basic level, it's very basic. And then the explosion that goes on from there until today and not only getting to be your carriots, but 
getting to be multicellular organisms than multicellular organisms with circulations and control systems. It, it, it gets beyond that. It was trying to get something simple. That's what I always look at. And then control systems that include a lateralized brain who kind of uh, has its intuitions hijacked by a kind of prefrontal cortex that thinks it knows everything and uh, becomes um, the kind of main part of uh, parts of academia saying that we should be eating vegetable oils because we've just discovered that that's actually better for our hearts than eating foods yeah. that we've been eating for three million years, etc. Yeah, the and the, the stuff that comes through that's that's just... I can't remember what the last one was, but uh, you, you you occasionally realise that that oh that was right. I think um, that, that there was a Twitter thing that um, oxygen consumption by cell preparations does not automatically signify oxidative phosphorylation. I think um, Seafried has just published a preprint on that basis. Came out. I, I saw the link this morning. Um, and you realize that people have been using um, oxygen consumption measurement from cell culture as a marker for oxidative phosphorylation. That's the only, it's always been the case and it's wrong. Yeah? Wow. Cell surface oxygen consumption uh, is the ability on, on the cell surface to convert um, uh, NADH back to NAD plus without using the mitochondria. So that's on the old cell surface, the the archaeal cell surface. Uh, you can do that, which allows you to run glycolysis down to um, phosphenol pyruvate and then divert it through to an anabolism for your cancer cell to make new substrate, uh, new substance. Um, but if you divert, um, glycolytic metabolites uh, like phosphine or pyruvate um, it can't carry on down to lactate um, to balance the NAD, NAD8, NAD plus NADH ratio um, so you've got to get if you're not using mitochondria to convert um, NADH back to NAD plus you've got to do it some other way and cell surface oxygen consumption does that you're never going to pick that up in a in a uh, cell surface uh, in a cell oxygen consumption uh, uh, analysis so and that's been done ever since people could measure oxygen consumption of, of cell cultures which goes back a long way nowadays and it's been wrong yeah so you can't you can't sit there stand there and say oh uh, uh, you know warburg says that, that 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 cancer cells don't do um oxidative phosphorylation well some of them do and some of them don't but they all consume oxygen but it's not necessarily being consumed by the mitochondria it, it could just be another way of regenerating um nad plus to allow glycolysis to continue so basically it's, it's a way of sidestepping um using mitochondria at all really um so that was that and the other one is metformin uh, people use a thousand microgram a thousand micromolar metformin in all of their experiments and that's going to kill you that, that but if they don't use a thousand micromolar it doesn't work 
<laughs> so all this concept that metform is a complex one inhibitor yeah fine if you're dead in the morgue it, it, yeah, that, that, that's perfectly okay and this is done again and again and again but you can extract useful information when they dose a, a rodent model with metformin now you know that one's not got a thousand micrograms a thousand micromole metformin because the rabbit or the rat be dead mm. um so the those bits of whatever experiments they run are completely usable and contain useful information the minute they start on cell culture and go well we think that metformin is concentrated in the mitochondria because blah 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 no <laughs> no it's not um and that's just junk and that's been done for decades again as long as there's been research on metformin uh, it, it, it and we make mistakes yeah. um we have to try lots of things to get some result, of the mistakes results. Yeah. Uh, some of the mistakes are very persistent um and uh, I'm thinking about the it, alzheimer's it, research that's been oh, it, yeah. to be uh, essentially fraudulent that mm -hmm. um, billions of of pounds worth of of uh, research has been done on that single shaky pig yes yes absolutely no no we 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 humans we make cock-ups completely and we're very loath to admit that we've made cock-ups um that, that's what you know somebody got taken in to build the pyramids this goes back a long way <laughs> <laughs> what they expected to gain from building the pyramids is 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 beyond me but apparently it wasn't it wasn't done by slaves it was done by people who went in there willingly in the agricultural quiet time of year and uh were convinced by their then ruling elites that um, building this big pyramid was a good plan. Tilting yeah. at windmills. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we do that. Well, mm. I've, I very much appreciate all of the, the tilting at uh, windmills you've done. And, uh, you know, the, the Hyperlipid blog was like, a, a, you know, one of the, the sites that I, I read back to front a, a few times and over the over the years but even i sort of devoured it i think before starting low carb because culturally seven years ago keto was kind of a weird one atkins had been and gone um and was probably more of an american phenomenon and you're just so concerned that something bad's going to happen if you deviate yep. from the norm in any way mm -hmm. and uh you know you helped give me the confidence and i know that you've helped give other people the confidence and you've really illuminated a lot of these kinds of concepts um so i appreciate it you're very welcome i'm glad that's nice <laughs> you know i just look at stuff and and decide whether it makes sense or not and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't I'm willing to comment on that. That's how it goes. That's how the blog works. And I mean, I'll link to Hyperlipid if people haven't been before, but it's high-fat-nutrition.blogspot.com. High, uh, um, is there anywhere else that you would want people to find you? No, there's only Hyperlipid. Well, I suppose I'm on I'm on Twitter, but I, I don't... I, I, I don't... Facebook I use for um, family photos, pretty plants, pretty flowers, um, odd picture of the river if it's a nice day, that kind of thing. I don't do anything technical on Facebook at all. Um, uh, Twitter is more, um, I think my Twitter handle is Peter in Norfolk. Um, and uh, I will make snide comments about 
safe and effective things and things like that on there <laughs> and occasional technical posts. Um, I don't do very much socializing there. I don't really do the kind of um, pretty flowers, things like uh, watching the snowdrops come up and watching the, uh, the, the winter aconites come out to me is, I love that time of year. It's a, uh, I don't do, I used to get seasonal affective disorder. I used to, but, but since carnivore, the winter is just in a, another time of year, just, but aesthetically the spring and summer to me are better than winter. Um, winter's got its upsides. Um, so but no, uh, Peter in Norfolk, um, uh, or at Peter in Norfolk with the, uh, you better put it in the links. I think. Oh, well, yeah, I think there's an yeah, underscore in there somewhere. It's badly spelt. I had no idea how you set up a Twitter handle. I still don't really know very much how, how you set up a Twitter handle. I don't know how you do multiple ones or anything like that at all. I, I, again, I, I've just got the simple, well, I can comment here and I do that if I feel I have something useful to contribute um, or if I'm particularly fed up with our uh, powers that be. Hmm. Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast as well. Thanks again. And uh, hopefully it's another uh, well-received episode. Oh, thank you very much. It's been great talking, Ali. Cheers. Thanks for listening and watching, everyone. Um, please hit subscribe where you're watching or listening so you don't miss out on future episodes. And please, please leave a review. It takes 30 seconds and really helps get these exciting messages out there. And if you or anyone you know could benefit from a mental health tune-up, head over to metsy.com. That's M-E-T-P-S-Y.com for myself and psychiatrist Dr. Rachel Brown, coach people to better mental health. Thanks.